sermons. John Andrew, do you want to preach the first few minutes for me? <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding, buddy. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for this day and the opportunity we have to hear your word and to receive the sacrament. I ask, Lord, that through the preaching of your word, most of all, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, uh, 16. Cut the sermon short, I guess, but no, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. And while you're turning there, I just want to briefly uh, reflect. You may have seen that on July 17th, uh, a lion, a gentle lion, but a lion nonetheless of the faith uh, went home to be with the Lord. That's J.I. Packer. Um, if you've ever um, heard of him, you would know he was a gentle, brilliant, and practical teacher of the faith. Uh, when I was in high school, besides scripture, probably the most profound book um, in my Christian walk was Knowing God, which was uh, really a modern classic written by J.I. Packer. And so when I, when I navigate this text uh, today with you all, and uh, we see what God has to teach us, and really whenever... Um, I like look at the sovereignty of God, right, and talk about God's providence over us in a way that is something we can have joy over. Um, I owe that outlook to J.I. Packer. More, he's a brother in Christ I never met, uh, but whom I will meet one day in glory. And so I'm grateful for his ministry among us, and I commend any of his books or lectures to you. They were uh, something special. Well, if you've been following along uh, with us in the book of Habakkuk, you know that the book of Habakkuk is super relevant to our life, our experience. Because Habakkuk is going through a little bit of craziness in his own time because Judah is becoming morally corrupt, but he's also anticipating even crazier times as he awaits Judah's judgment placed on them by God at the hands of the Chaldeans or the Babylon, the Babylonian people, right? And then we saw last week a pronunciation of woes, so then he anticipates that there will be redemption and retribution, but despite all that, there were trials and tragedies and frustrations in his life. Well, somebody that's no stranger to these trials and frustrations um, in his life would be Horatio Spafford. So no doubt we are facing our own trials in 2020, but this is an interesting story, and you may know the name Horatio Spafford, because if you look in your bulletin, um, It Is Well With My Soul was written by this man. Well, Horatio Spafford was a devout Christian man. He was an elder in his local Presbyterian church, uh, and he was a successful attorney and real estate investor. Well, he lost everything. He lost everything. In the Chicago fire of 1871, his business was one of those that burnt to the ground. As they were recovering from that financial loss, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Obviously, thinking that they could use a break from normal life to recover, he decides that him and his family are going to go on vacation to England. So he books a ship. Well, he's recovering his business, remember, and so some last-minute issues in getting his business kickstarted keep him from leaving along with his wife and his four daughters, and so he decides, I'll catch a later ship, and we'll meet together there. We'll have a good time and recover. On that journey, 
uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. That ship was involved in a major collision, cost the lives of 200 people, including all four of Horatia Spafford's daughters. Spafford's wife, Anna, miraculously survived that collision and was recovered unconscious in the ocean and brought safely to England. When she got there, she sent a telegram to Spafford that began with these words, saved and alone, what shall I do? Well, Spafford, being a devoted husband, takes the next ship to England so that he and his wife can return together to their home and mourn the loss of their four daughters properly. On that uh, voyage to England, the captain of that ship became aware of the tragedy that struck his family and let him know when they were passing across the site of the shipwreck. So Spafford comes up, looks across the deck at the expanse of the ocean, and as he no doubt is mourning the loss of his four daughters, some words of comfort come to his mind. They'll be familiar to you, no doubt. We just sang them. It's one of the most iconic hymns of our time. This is from his journal entry that day. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Words of hope in the middle of tragedy and frustration. And perhaps we cannot say that everything is well in our lives, whether we are anticipating surgery, whether we are going through an illness of some kind, whether we are facing pay cuts or fractured relationships, there are always storms and tragedies and frustrations in our lives. But what I hope we'll see in Habakkuk 3, as we walk through his own dealing with his own tragedies, I hope that we will see that with faith in a loving God and with trust in his divine help. We may not be able to say it is well in my life, in my work, and in my relationships, but I hope we'll be able to say it is well with our soul. Well, last week when Sean Templeton was preaching among us, we saw that God promised judgment against the people of Babylon for the evil they will commit against Judah. The Lord has spoken in the pronunciation of five woes, and what happens next in this book is really fitting for how it's gone so far, right? It's kind of been a dialogue uh, back and forth between Habakkuk and the Lord, and so Habakkuk talks back to God, right? He prays to God, and he does express trust in the Lord, even though the plan outright confuses him. That trust that he has that we're going to see today, it may beg a question you may have been asking after even hearing the pronunciation of the woes last week. How can you trust a God when the promises he's made to you haven't happened yet? And perhaps you're asking that question we've been asking through this whole series, the same question you ask when you're stuck in downtown traffic. How long, oh Lord? How long? Why would you do this to me? I'm one of your people. It's the same question I ask during allergy season, which I'm wrestling with right now a little bit. How long? And how can we know this is not how the story ends? 
Well, Habakkuk does something in this passage that tells us how we can know, and it's a useful tool for us to do as well. He retells the story of God's deliverance of his people. He looks back at what we call redemption history, and it all starts in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. I have learned that my Hebrew classes did me wrong and that it's not not, it's not. So thank you, Iris, from earlier today. Or maybe it's been too long since I took them. I don't know. But Shigianoth, it's not a word that you hear much, right? It kind of sounds like a pastry. Like you would go to some kind of uh, ethnic uh, cafe and order a Shigianoth. You know? I don't know. It sounds kind of good, but... It's an important word. It's an important word because it helps us to see Habakkuk's heart in this prayer. It occurs twice in the Old Testament, once here and once in Psalm 7. And that context is telling for us because though it can either mean an instrument or lament, Psalm 7 is a lament, and I think what we'll see in verse 16 is that this is also uh, lament. So I think it's fair to say that Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to pour out my heart in grief and sorrow. That this is a, a prayer of lament. And if we're going to throw around that word lament, it might be helpful to know what it means. It means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And in scripture, we typically see two main components to a lament. There's the sorrow Right There's the grief, typically, because you sinned, or somebody else sinned, and now you're mourning it. You are grieving it. And then there's also this other part. Trust. Trust in the Lord's plan is typically the second part in a biblical lament with just a few exceptions. And so I think what we'll see in this passage, especially when we get to verse 16, is that Habakkuk is lamenting. It's a prayer of faith, but it's also a prayer of sorrow. Let's continue to verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Well, Habakkuk has just heard the pronunciation of what, or the pronouncement of woes against his enemies, Right? But he's heard something else in the midst of that. Do you think that he's asking God to be merciful on Babylon? Is he saying, take it easy on these guys that are about to crush us? No, it's not what he's saying. What has he heard? He's heard how bad it's going to get for Judah. Why are the people of Babylon going to be judged? Because they're going to rock Judah's world. They're going to utterly crush the people of God. And so Habakkuk is basically saying, Lord, I hear you. <laughs> I, I get that we've kind of messed up and that you're going to punish us. But don't forget who we are in all this. Remember that we are your people. And because we are your people, remember who you are and have mercy on us. Do not forget us. I wonder if you've ever asked that or said that to God yourself? Have you ever squared up against God and just said, please, 
Don't let this be how the story ends. Remember who I am to you. That I'm one of your people. Remember who you are. That yes, you have wrath, but you are merciful. Or maybe in another way, you've kind of recited to yourself the history of your own life to feel a little bit better about what you're going through. Like you're about to have a pay cut. So you recite last time you got a pay cut and you remember how you got through it and say, okay, I can get through it this time too. The last time you got a bad diagnosis and you were like, okay, I went, got through it that time, so this is how I'm going to get through this too. You remind yourself of it, right? You go through it again to see how God brought you through it and you hope that maybe this will be the same thing. But what does it mean for Habakkuk right here? I mean, Habakkuk basically talks back to God a little bit. He's getting a little bit feisty here. He's telling God about himself. He's saying, God, let me tell you about what you did. Let me tell you about how you did deliver us. How you did bring us through before. How you were merciful to us. And he does that by remembering the stories of deliverance that God did for his people throughout their history, which we see in verses 3 through 15. And in reading that, there's no doubt a lot we can learn just about the history of Israel. There's also a lot we can learn about God here too, right? We obviously, we know that God is gracious and merciful, right? We see that. We see that God is sovereign, right? How he delivers his people through these things. We see something else, right? We see that God is fearsome. He is worthy to be feared. He is worthy to be revered. And, and we see that through the story of God's interaction with his people. Let's continue to verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. So Habakkuk is going through the story of their heritage, and it starts with just kind of invoking this sense of the majesty of God, this fear in that God who's also known as the Lion of Judah. And he wants us, remember that we providentially, by God's grace, get to read this ourselves. And so it's meant not just to stir up Habakkuk's own reverence for God, but for it to stir up our reverence for God as well, to revere this fearsome and holy God who exercises judgment and deliverance. Verses 4 and 5, His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Obviously, it's another great image of God's judgment and God's power, but there's something else here, too. And it's super important for Habakkuk as he's remembering the deliverance God exercises over his people. And it's important for us to remember when we're waiting on God to move as well. Why does Egypt face plagues and pestilence? He's clearly talking about the deliverance out of exile here. Why does Egypt face plague and pestilence? The same reason that Babylon receives those five woes. It's judgment, divine judgment from the Lord over the enemies of his people and his will. Because God always enacts divine judgment against those nations and things which oppose him. He always conquers over those things, those people, and those places which oppose him. So when you're disgusted at what's going on in this world, 
Maybe you're disgusted at what's going on in your own life, right? Maybe you're frustrated with what's going on and you're seeing the enemies of God prevail in your life. I want you to remember that God always conquers his enemies. And yes, that includes historical Egypt. Yes, it includes historical Babylon. But the hope of the gospel is that it also includes our sins, that Christ bore divine judgment upon himself to face the consequence for your sins because you were an enemy of God. But if you believe in Christ, you will not perish but have eternal life. And it doesn't stop there. Because there's a lot of God's enemies running around in our experiences today. Sickness, racism, abortion, poverty, and death are God's enemies. And while in this world we have trouble, we can take heart knowing that Christ has overcome the world. And when Christ comes again, and he will, we will see the fullness of this reality. That Christ does conquer his enemies, and that includes sin and death. And we see that very clearly, in Scripture. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 24-25. I encourage you to look at that later, because if you read further in that passage, what do you see? That there is another enemy that is destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God conquers every enemy, whether that's physical, spiritual, or otherwise. He is victorious over them all. Continue on to verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. It's a few more images of God's divine judgment and power over all things. But then Habakkuk is going to shift focus after he asks some questions of God, which we're going to see in the next few verses, verses 8 through 11. See if you can notice the shift here. Verses 8 through 11. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. We see some similar things here that we've seen so far in the passage, right? Same kind of examples. But there's a shift here. Did you notice the shift in focus? He's obviously looking at the judgment that God exercises over his enemies, right? That is clear. But he's also now shifting the focus toward real accounts of deliverance. It kind of underpines the first seven verses, but it comes out very clearly in verses 8 through 11 that the Lord delivers his people he recounts several historical victories that he's experienced. In verse 8, we see kind of a general phrase, right? The chariot of salvation. The idea of God delivering his people out of exile. Likely he's thinking of Egypt here. But in verse 11, we see a phrase 
the sun and moon stood still. I think this is one of the coolest stories in Scripture, frankly. It's actually um, where Bethany and I were out last night um, in our um, evening devotions. This is in the book of Joshua. It's a hat tip to a real historical deliverance where God delivers God's people through the hand of Joshua at the battle of Gibeon where the sun literally stands still. And in that passage, he says, there was never before a day like it where the sun and the moon stood still. There will never be a day like it after where God fought on behalf of his people Israel. See, in that story, God doesn't just work through people. In that story, God says, rains down large rocks from heaven, hail, to conquer the enemies and fight on behalf of the people of Israel, to fight for Joshua. So what are we seeing in Habakkuk? What's the point of bringing up that story? It's a point of who the warrior is. Because it's not Joshua, mighty man though he was. It's not Moses, though I pity the man for his job. Would never have wanted to do that. Crazy, stubborn people, much like ourselves. Who is the warrior? It's God. God is the warrior. He's the one firing his arrows. He's the one that the mountains see and writhe. It's God. And Habakkuk is remembering that God delivers his people, and we can remember that we've already been delivered through Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. Whenever we talk about deliverance, it's important to talk about what we don't mean, right? And I always harp on these guys, and I don't mind them. I was actually asked to name names, um, so next time I will. Um, but the prosperity gospel is not what I mean. So in naming names, I'm thinking of the T.D. Jakes, the Joel Osteens, the Kenneth Copelands, the what's his name, Cash Flow Dollar, or whatever he na- changed his name to. These guys who say that if you just believe enough, if you just pray enough, if you just tithe enough, then you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to live a long and happy life. That's not what I mean when I say deliverance, and that's not what God means in his word either. That's false teaching. It has no place at the pulpit. Nancy actually brought produce to hand out on Thursday night. And I told her, if you ever hear a prosperity gospel preacher preach at Christ Church on Thursday night, bring produce on Sunday and throw it at him (laughs) until he leaves. And then hopefully he'll come back as a humble congregant and hear the word of God and repent for his false teaching. No, that's not what we mean. We mean that Christ has overcome the world. That's what we mean. That Christ is the warrior, that he's the deliverer that we see in Habakkuk, and that if we are in Christ, come what may, whether we are sick, whether we are poor, whether we are afflicted, it can be well with our souls because Christ holds us close and near and dear to himself, and in him we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, no matter what else happens, because Christ has conquered our sins. And when he comes again, we will experience that deliverance and that victory to its fullest degree. Let's continue on to verses 12 through 15. Man, a combination of like this passage and the cold air is making me all jittery and excited. It's fun. So let's look at verses 12 through 15. 
You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Let's go pause there for a second. If you were to lay a Babylonian bare from thigh to neck, what would you realize? It may feel kind of like a trick question, but to the Jews who are reading this, it's not. These are not a circumcised people. What does it mean in the Old Testament if you are not circumcised? You have no part in the covenant of God. You're not God's people. So what is Habakkuk remembering? That for people who stand against the will of God, the buck stops at judgment. He's asking for mercy for those who live according to his will. He's asking for mercy for the Lord's anointed, his set-apart people. But if you are not God's people, the buck stops at judgment. When they are laid bare, they are seen to be uncircumcised. They are seen to have no place in the promises of God. Let's continue. By the way, circumcision is not the sign of the covenant. Now it's baptism, so don't, don't stress yourselves out too much about that one. All right. Little crass humor just to liven things up. Verse four. <laughs> you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the scourging of mighty waters. So we see a couple things that we've been seeing throughout. More example of God's judgment, right? But we see something else here that is telling about God. We see the why. Why does God do this? And we'll see that in verse 13 in a second. But just to answer the why not, if you've read the Old Testament at all, or you know anything about the human condition, or you know anything about yourself, you know it's not because we're good. Humans aren't good. We're the worst. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians behave worse than the pagans do, running Christ's name through the mud. It's not because we are good, that God will deliver his people. It's not because we are good that God keeps his promise. So why does he do it? Because he's kept the promise. And because God is good and always keeps his promises. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. To be anointed by God is to be set apart for his purpose. If you are in Christ you are a part of that reality, a part of the covenant of God. And so when God delivers us from our sins, when God delivers the people of Judah from Babylon, it is not because he thinks that somehow that will make them change and stop being stiff-necked and sinful. Because we can't help but. That's why the gospel is good news. and We rest in the victory of Christ. He delivers his people because he made a promise, and he always makes good on his promises. Let's close with verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people to invade us. It sounds like a lament to me. There is rottenness in my bones. My legs quiver my lips quiver, 
my body trembles, my legs tremble beneath me. He has trust and faith in God's deliverance, but he's also lamenting because he will have to wait. And Habakkuk will be waiting a very long time. In fact, he will not live to see the day that Judah is delivered from Babylon. If he lives as long as some scholars place him, he will exist in a Judah that is a shadow and a fragment of the Judah he saw in his youth. A place of destruction and of death. If he lives long enough to see a transition, it'll be a transition to Judah's experience of the wrath of God on them at the hands of the Babylonians. And no doubt, on his deathbed, Habakkuk, with destruction before his eyes, will recount the promises God made to his people through the mouth of Moses years ago when he said, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. That's Deuteronomy 33, 7. He will die experiencing what seems to be a contradiction between the promises and blessings of God and what he and his people are going through. So how does he trust in God and how do we? I think Habakkuk offers us a great tool here for our use to trust in God, to retell the story of our redemption. That the Lord has delivered before and he will deliver again. Does that mean that life isn't hard now? Of course it doesn't mean that. Um, to that point, Bethany and I recently watched uh, Hamilton. That play is on Disney+. Plus, and, you know, there's, there's some language and stuff to navigate. So that's my family-friendly warning for you. But I would encourage you to check it out. It's very well done. And there's a character named Aaron Burr, who if you know anything about your American Revolution history, he's the guy that kills Hamilton in a duel. But he has a song called Wait For, and it has these lines. Life doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes, and it takes, and it takes, and we keep living anyway. Um, there's some problematic points, obviously, with Aaron Burr's <laughs> worldview. But the man's got a point. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus himself says that the sun rises and sets on the righteous and the wicked alike. It seems in our experiences that there's not much difference between what I experience as someone who loves the Lord, though imperfectly, and somebody who couldn't care less. Right? I get sick, they get sick. I get better, they get better. They get better, I get worse. They get a job, I lose a job. I get a job, they get a job. It just seems like there's no difference in how we experience our lives and how people who don't care about the Lord experience their lives. But there is, there's a fundamental, real difference. And that's why retelling the story of our redemption is so important. Because in retelling the story of our redemption, we see we have already experienced deliverance in Christ. Now, it might not mean things get better now, but it means that we are delivered from our sins it means that we are delivered from death, and it means that God is faithful to keep his promises 
And we will experience that to his fullest degree in his foolish, fullest measures when he does come again. And that's something to keep retelling from generation to generation. So for now, take heart, Christian, and hold fast the promises of God. Like Horatio Spafford, who lost everything, when we rest in the promises of God, it is well with our souls. And so when we receive communion together, let that be a reminder of the promises God has made and the promises God has kept. And if this seems new to you, if this is a hope that you want but don't have, the gospel is a simple thing, friends, and I invite you to come talk to us about it. J.I. Packer, who we mentioned earlier, sums up the gospel in three words. God saves sinners. That's hope for me, no doubt. I hope that that could be hope for you, and we would love to walk that journey with you. Because if you've ever experienced that reality for yourself, you know it's true. And you know that no matter what, even when sorrows like sea billows roll, you were kept by Christ, loved dearly by him, and delivered from your sins. Because God keeps his promises, and we can hope in that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel, for the hope we have in you. And we ask that as we continue to worship you today, that you would be glorified and fill us with hope and preparation to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.